let's turn in our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Ruth chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. That you honor your word even above your name. That your word is enduring. That it, it doesn't change. It's everlasting. It communicates your character, your nature, your love for us. And as we look at this love story of, of Ruth and Boaz, may we be reminded of you, Jesus, the love that you have for the church. The way that you have paid the ultimate price uh, to redeem us. So we welcome you into this time. Pray that you would instruct us and teach us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone loves a good love story. Most of our major movies have a love story involved. Uh, We think of Robin Hood. It's got your love story. Of course, Cinderella, the famous love story, Romeo and Juliet. And as we go through the book of Ruth, it is a love story that develops between Ruth and Boaz. But it starts with tragedy, doesn't it? It starts with a family that has to leave Bethlehem because of famine. They go to Moab. They're strangers. They're they're foreigners. And then Naomi, her husband dies. Then her two sons die. What a loss. What a heartbreak. She decides to come back to Bethlehem because God has visited Bethlehem with bread Ruth decides that she's going to go with her mother-in-law. She's going to travel with her mother-in-law back uh, to Bethlehem. As we go through chapter 2 this morning, we are going to focus on and see the character of Ruth and the character of Boaz. You can't help but see this great godly character in both of them. But I've got to tell you this morning, that's not the main point. That's not the main point of chapter 2. What the main point is, is that Boaz points to Christ. That Christ is the true hero. That he's the one who redeems us. And Ruth is a picture of the church, the Moabitess. And so we see Christ's love in a great way as we go through this. We'll see Ruth's character, Boaz's character, but ultimately the character of God. So verse 1, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. We'll see why it's important that Boaz is one of Naomi's relative as we go further into the text. But what we read about Boaz is that he was a man of great wealth. Remember that this was a time of great spiritual darkness, the time of the judges. There was a famine, but somehow Boaz was able to weather this storm. By God's grace, he was able to weather the difficulties, and the scriptures tell us he was of of great wealth. Now we know that Money in and of itself isn't evil, right? It's, it's the love of money that's e- evil. It's our attitude towards money. And Boaz is an, a good example of not allowing wealth to get the best of him. We're going to find that he's, he's a great blessing to people. He's using God's resources to be able to bless others. The name Boaz means standing in strength. And he's quite the guy. He's quite the guy with great character We'll find that Solomon, his great-great-grandson, when he builds the temple, one of the two pillars he names Boaz in in memory of of this uh, great man. So we get introduced to to Boaz. In verse 2, So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. 
And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, I want you to underline or at least take notice of Ruth the Moabitess. It's repeated throughout the text because this is how she is known. She is known as a foreigner. She's known as a stranger. And especially, she is known as a Moabitess. In Deuteronomy, God said, God declared that Moabites could not come into the general assembly of the Lord because of the way that they had treated the children of Israel in the wilderness. So she is a complete outcast. And she has no hope of being able to to gather around the tabernacle, Moabites in the future not coming in into uh, the temple. And what we find in Ruth is we find a picture of the church. She is desperately in need of Boaz in in her life. She's destitute as, as a widow. And she comes to glean in the field. And we're the stranger. We're the foreigner. We're we're alienated from the people of God, especially as Gentiles, aren't we? But God in his grace and his love, we're going to see God pour out blessing upon Moab or upon Ruth the Moabitess. And, And God pursues us with his grace and his mercy as well. Ruth has this idea. Let me go to the field to be able to to glean. And maybe I will find favor And this is rooted in Leviticus 19, where God told the children of Israel, when it comes to harvest, leave a portion of your field, don't harvest it, so that the poor and the stranger can come and have food. And I believe that God's design is a great design here. God's saying, don't forget the poor, don't forget the stranger, don't forget the person that's in need, but there's a level of dignity when you come and you work to be able to receive the food. I think all of us would say, I would much rather work if I'm able to be able to receive a provision than to just have someone give it to me, than to just have it be a handout. And so God set all of this up. And what we find with Ruth's character is she's a woman of initiative and she's working in obedience according to God's word. She she has heard, she's known that this is a a practice in Bethlehem, a practice in Israel. So she says, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work. And I'm going to see if if someone will have favor upon me. In verse 3, then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is the family of Elimelech. So she doesn't know this prior to this moment. We, we know it because we got to read verse 1. But she doesn't know that Boaz is a close relative at, at this point. And the way that the scripture tells us is it just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz. But what God is saying is it was his hand. God works very supernatural in the natural Sometimes we miss his working, we, we miss his hand because it just feels so natural. But if we're paying attention, we go, Lord, this is your hand. So this is part of God's character. God's working in the details. He's working behind the scenes. I, I remember in 2013, I went out to our parking lot on a Thursday afternoon and I was looking for my car, my 92 Accord that I'd had for forever. And I was like, I'm sure that I parked it right here. But I'm very absent-minded. Uh, I misplace things, and sometimes I park in the back, and I forget that. And so I, I go to the back of the building, and it's not there. So I walk up to Robert's office, and I say, I think I'm losing my mind. My car may have been stolen, but can you at least check the parking lot? Maybe you, you, you can see it. So we walk out the parking lot, and sure enough, it, it, it was stolen, right? 
And so I'm like pretty quickly realized I'm going to need a car. Uh, so I got on Craigslist and I put in there 1992 Honda Accord. And here comes a Honda Accord, a different Honda Accord that only had 76,000 miles in 2013. That was made in 1992. So I called Amber and I was like, I think this is, this is God's provision. And she couldn't go look at it with me. And she's like, if it's the right car, just buy it. So, so I, I bought the car, you know, right on the spot. And I was like, wow, God, you're, you're so good. Now, it just so happened that that car was on Craigslist when I needed a car, right? No, that was God's provision. And then two weeks later, about 11 o'clock at night, uh, my cell phone rings and then the home phone rings. And Amber's like, you better get up and see what, what's going on. And, and it was the police were calling me and they had found my stolen car. It was like at Flint Ridge Academy, an apartment complex. So I ended up with two Honda Accords. It just so happened that I ended up with two, two Honda Accords. And, and then I sold my, my original one that had over 200,000 miles. And, and God provided. It just so happened that God provided. And I don't have any Honda, 1992 Honda Accords anymore. But it just so happened, right? It, it's God's hand. It's God working supernatural in the natural. And, and verse 4 Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. What a great boss to have. Wouldn't you love to go to work and have your boss say, the Lord bless you this morning. You know, the Lord keep you this morning. The Lord cause his face to to shine upon you. And they would return back, the Lord bless you. And ultimately this points to Christ. Yes, Boaz is a man of faith and blessing. Because of his faith, he pronounces blessing. Jesus walks among us. He's the ultimate authority, but he walks among us. The old King James in translation of this verse says, Boaz walked among them. He was among those that that worked for him and worked in his fields. And John 1 tells us that Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled. Jesus walks among us. And he's God, but he's also approachable because of his humanity. And Jesus pronounces blessing upon us. I want you to turn with me to John 17, and we see a blessing that's given upon us as believers. Jesus is praying a prayer to the Father, and he's praying blessing upon us. Much like that we would pray for our loved ones and we, we pray for blessing in their lives. So this is John 17, 20 through 25. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What an amazing blessing that we would have unity with God the way that the Father and the Son have unity together. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. We receive the same glory that was given to Christ. And I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So Christ in us, and then we're loved the same way that Jesus is loved. 
all for the purpose so that the world can see the glory of God. This is tremendous blessing that God is giving upon us. And Jesus is praying in verse 20 for future believers, for those that would believe, that that's us. And verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. What a blessing that we get to be with God forever to behold God's glory. Do you picture Jesus this way? Do you you picture yourself being in the position that Ruth is in? I'm broken. I'm I'm a Moabitess. Now, Ruth is working, but no matter how hard she works, she's not able to provide for the need that she and Naomi has. And we can be working and trying to earn and deserve God's favor, but we could never pay off this debt that we owe before God. And here's Jesus in the foreshadowing of Boaz, and he comes and he speaks blessing into our lives, and he walks among us. Now, maybe at this point in this study, you're saying, you know what, Eric, I just feel like you're stretching it a little too far. That do we really see Christ in Boaz? Do we really see the church in Ruth? Jesus, when he rose from the dead before he ascended to the Father, is walking on the road of Emmaus with a few of his disciples, and he went through the Old Testament. The scripture tells us he went through the law and the prophets, and he said, hey guys, look right here. This is actually speaking of me. This points to me. I would imagine that Jesus took them through the story of Ruth and said, the redemption, we see Boaz redeeming Ruth, ultimately pointed to how I would redeem the church. Let's go back to Ruth chapter two and look verse five. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? At this point, this is just me. I don't think that Boaz is starting to develop a romantic interest. Who knows? Maybe maybe he is. Possibly by the end of the chapter, there's maybe some attraction that's starting uh, to take place. At this point, I think Boaz is simply being attentive to what's taking place in his field. He knows who works for him. He knows that this is a stranger, that this is a new person that, that has, has come in uh, to, to the field. And so he asks the question, who is this, this woman? And Christ is attentive to us, isn't it? Isn't it amazing that Christ would, would take notice of us? The psalmist puts it this way. Oh God, it, it's amazing that you're mindful of me. Here you're the creator of the universe and you're so vast, but yet you're, you're mindful of me. Does it bring you comfort when you think of Jesus thinking about you, or do you think that his thoughts are one of anger where he's out to get you? If God's thinking about me, he's probably thinking about how he will fry my face off in judgment, right? No, but it's his love for us. His thoughts towards us are, are of peace and not of evil. He thinks about us more than the sands of the sea. So Boaz is, is attentive. In verse six, so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little while in the house. This is the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi and she's been working hard. She's been working hard from the morning till now. She took a little bit of rest and she's she's working hard. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not glean in another field. 
nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessel and drink from what the young men have drawn. Boaz cares for the needs of others. He cares for Ruth's needs. What does he offer? He offers provision. He says, make sure you're gleaning in my field. Don't go to someone else's field. You're more than welcome to come and glean in in the field. Offers her water. This is the Middle East. It's hot. You think it's hot here? Go hang out in the Middle East and work out in the field all day. Make sure you stay hydrated and make sure that you, you come and you get water. But he also offers her protection. He says, I've told my young men to, to leave you alone, to, to not uh, touch you. And Jesus, he cares for our needs, doesn't he? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He laid down his life as a ransom for us. In Philippians 2, let me read it to you. It describes the humility of Christ and to the degree that Christ served. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it to be robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he's God, and he humbles himself and comes in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's look at the beauty and the majesty of Christ a little bit this morning. Let's consider how Christ was so willing to redeem us to where he said yes to becoming man, to taking human flesh. And as he's born, he's born where? He's born in Bethlehem, a small town, a place of obscurity. Church, a place that today we would not want to spend a lot of time in. It's a a tough city. It's a tough neighborhood. It's It's a tough place. And then... As he walked the earth, what was his position? A carpenter. If he was a professor at Harvard, it would be a little difficult for us to relate with Christ. But he was a normal carpenter. I'm sure he did some great work as a carpenter. Most of Christ's life was spent in obscurity serving as a carpenter. Maybe you can relate and say, you know, I don't think anyone notices what I do for work. God notices and God sees. He's rejected in his ministry by the nation of Israel, his own people. He's rejected by his own family. They don't believe that he is the uh, Messiah. His half-brothers and sisters, were Mary and Joseph, went on to, to ha- have children. But then he's humbled to the point of going to the cross. And the physical suffering of going to the cross, but the spiritual reality of he knew no sin but he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God he took my sin upon himself so that I could be forgiven crying out to God my God my God why have you forsaken me because I'm sure some of you this morning would say man I sure wish that I had a Boaz in my life 
like, this, this is amazing, you know? Th- th- this guy, here he is, he's providing provision and providing protection, and I'm married to this knucklehead over here, you know? Why, why can't he be more like Boaz? Some of you husbands might be saying, man, I just wish my wife would care for some of my needs, you know? Why can't you preach a message on caring for your spouse's needs? Come on, you know? But ultimately, what we're longing for cannot be met in our spouse. That's not our true hero. Our true hero is Christ. You may be single and you may be saying, I just need Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright. I need Boaz in my life, even if God provides that. Praise the Lord. But ultimately, they can't meet the longing of your hearts. It's only Christ. And our true hero is Christ. And this is amazing and this is phenomenal, the way that Christ serves us and had this mindset to serve others. And here's what I think unlocks our character. It's not necessarily try harder or do better. Okay, be someone who works hard, be someone who takes initiative, be someone who cares for the needs of others. But as we truly understand to the degree that Christ has served us and we spend time with Christ, then that moves us to serve others. We go, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. I I don't deserve this. Here this morning, you're, you're concerned with what's going on in my life, and then the natural response is we're going to begin to care for the needs of others. In verse 10, so she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take no- notice of me since I am a, a foreigner? And this is the response of the church with the grace of God, that the provision of Christ that he would die for our sins our eternal home that's promised to us, the ultimate protection of, of eternity, the security of eternity, and we respond to God and we say, wow, this is amazing that I have found your favor, that I've found your grace, that you have forgiven me. We don't see an entitlement mentality in Ruth. We, we don't see her saying, man, I've been through so much and all you can offer me is some work in your field to go get some grain. Here I've lost my husband and traveled from, from Moab. You should be bringing me a Gatorade, not a glass of water, right? She's humbled. She's, she's a woman of humility, and she's so, she's so thankful, and for us as well. When we really understand what Christ has done, we, we respond in humility and gratitude. Verse 11, And Boaz answered and said to her, It's been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And how you have left your father and mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you've come for refuge. Ruth is a woman of good reputation. Here, Boaz is just meeting Ruth for the first time and they're having conversation, but Boaz already knows about Ruth. Words gotten around in the community. Apparently there were tweets and Instagram stories that were happening uh, about Ruth. And your reputation does travel. Your reputation does, does travel. The Bible says that even a child is known by their deeds, right? So here's a side note. I think it, it is a side note. The big narrative is Christ in the church, Boaz and Ruth. But if you're single and you're desiring to get married, no matter what your age is, maybe you're high school student, college student, maybe 45, doesn't matter, but you have a heart to be married and you're single, 
Notice with Ruth and Boaz that they were people of character before they met. They loved the Lord before they met. And then when they met, they had a head start to a healthy marriage. And if you're looking for a spouse, please look at their character. Please look at their character, right? Because what happens? You, you meet someone and you're like, oh, they are so hot. They're so attractive. And you just begin to melt on the inside. Yes, even as adults. And before long, you're, you're willing to forfeit some character. You might even find yourself as a believer going, you know, it doesn't really matter that they don't know Christ. It doesn't really matter that they, they don't believe in God because they treat me so well over here, you know? And by the way, they've got those big brown eyes or those beautiful blue eyes, right? No, you, you've got to be looking at their character. And then oftentimes what happens is you do meet someone and they don't have a heart for God, but you have a heart for God. So all of a sudden, they have a heart for God. It's kind of like, oh, your favorite color is blue? No way, my favorite color is blue as well. You know, I remember like when I was 19, I met this gal that I liked and she was all into running and she's like, do you run? And I'm like, yeah, I run, right? <laughs> so that week I went out and went for a, a five mile run, right? I, I hadn't ran in a long time. It was that whole thing of like, oh, you're into running? I, I'm into running too, right? So make sure that their relationship with God goes deep and they have good, good godly character. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. Uh, don't look for perfection, right? Marriage is two sinners committing their lives to each other. Can I get an amen, right? So you're not looking for this perfect person that doesn't have any character flaws because if you do that, you will be single for the rest of your life, right? So, but it is to say, I do see a heart for God, and I do see godly character. And also, you can focus now and say, I want to be that person of character now. So I'm going to start loving my future spouse now by loving the Lord, by investing in, in good godly character. In verse 13, then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. This is a huge deal for Boaz to do this. You have Jews, Israelis, sitting together, having a meal together, taking a break from, from work. Here's the Moabite, here's the Gentile, here's the, the foreigner who can't come into worship, can't come into the assembly of God. We know there's a huge divide between Jew and Gentiles. Even the New Testament believers str struggled with that. And here's Boaz saying, come on, come on, sit down, sit down at my table and eat with us. And they would eat in a different way. And they would dip into to common bowls. And to share a meal with someone was to express unity. It was to express friendship. That's not necessarily the, the case uh, for us. And again, we see Jesus in this. Jesus welcomes us to his table by his grace, even though we don't deserve to be there. God loves to invite us to a place of fellowship. Jesus would often eat with his disciples enjoyed spending time with them. 
the last supper, the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was crucified, he said, do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents my broken body. This cup represents my my shed blood. And when when you gather together, take time to remember that I love you and that I I died for you. My blood was shed for you. We're going to do that this morning in a few minutes. We're going to celebrate communion. and, And God has provided communion for us to remind us that God has given us the ultimate spiritual provision. Jesus lets Peter know that you're going to deny me. Peter says, no way, I'm never going to deny you. And he does. He, he denies the Lord. Christ is crucified, rises again. Peter goes fishing. Jesus wakes up early in the morning. Peter has fished all night. And Jesus has a barbecue on the Sea of Galilee for Peter. I knew I liked Jesus. Jesus liked to barbecue. And he cooks the fish. What Peter was looking for, he says, Peter, come and have breakfast with me. Come and dine. Come to, come to my table. I'm sure the fish tasted good. But you know what even tasted better was the restoration that Peter desperately needed. And Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And Peter begins to, to break down. And then God speaks to Peter and says, I've chosen you to take care of my sheep, to pastor. And is commissioned as, as a pastor. Heaven is described as the marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus is preparing a great feast when all of the church is gathered together. Can you imagine that feast that's there? Psalms 23 tells us that God is our shepherd and that he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So terrible circumstance, maybe even people that are coming against us, and God's saying, look, I got a table for you. I've got some provision here for you. I am with you. And what does the text tell us? Ruth was satisfied at the table. And of course, we know that's her, her physical need to eat. She's like, oh, this was, this was some, some good food. But we're ultimately satisfied at Christ's table. There's a lot of tables to go and eat at. And I don't mean physically, spiritually. There's a lot of places to go and try to find that need in our soul to be met. But ultimately, it can only be met at Christ's table. And in order to experience that satisfaction, that nourishment that comes from him, it takes time. We eat so fast, don't we? All of our meals are, are so quick. We don't, we don't have time to, to sit down and to eat. That's not the way it is in the Middle Eastern culture. Even in the middle of the day, they're going to pause and have time for a relationship. And if we're going to sit at Christ's table, it might take a little bit of time just to wait and to be with them and, and to hear from him. In verse 15 And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke. Gives Ruth an extra portion, and Christ is is gracious. He's saying, guys, as you're harvesting, just drop off a bundle for Ruth. There you go. Bam. There you go, right? So maybe some of the romantic attraction is, is starting to begin now. We, we don't know. Or, or maybe Boaz is simply just moved by her plight. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley equal to a bushel, about 35 liters. Uh, she's come back with, with lots of food, lots of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. 
So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. Verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi understands that someone has been gracious to Ruth. This is more than she could ever come up with through one day's work. So she's, who took notice of you? Well, it was Boaz. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relative of ours and one of our close relatives. Sometimes in our context, in our world that we live in today, the Bible is confusing, isn't it? I mean, why would this be good news that he's a relative? For us, this would mean this is not a candidate for marriage. Can I get an amen? No kissing cousins, all right? Okay. But this is the way that God had set things up for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. The law was this, that if a husband died, then it was the brother's responsibility. If the, if the husband had a brother, where then he was to marry his widow. And if they were blessed with, with children, then those children would carry on the name of the deceased brother. Now, I'm so thankful we're under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. I love my brother. He's a great man, but it'd be terrifying if Amber had to marry him, right? I'm like, no thank you, right? That's, that's, weird. that's weird to me, right? And so the reason why Naomi's encouraged is he's saying, this falls along the line of the kinsman redeemer. That he has the right to be able to, to marry Ruth. And we'll see in our, in our future studies that there is one who is a closer relative, but he shirks his responsibility of redemption and it falls on Boaz. But also see in verse 20 that this encourages Naomi. This is part of the restoration and being restored to joy inside of Naomi. As she says, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. This is not the tune that she was singing when she returned to Bethlehem. Remember, she said, "Ah, I know my name is Naomi, pleasantness, but don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And she really felt that God was against her, that God had forgotten her, that God was her adversary. And all of a sudden, she starts to see some hope, and she's saying, God hasn't forgotten me. God hasn't forsaken me. In verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess, there it is, that title staying with her. He also said to me, you shall stay close to my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Sometimes it's hard to get the timing in the book of Ruth because it's such a short book, but there is time here that takes place. She's in Boaz's field all through the barley harvest and then also all through the wheat harvest, and then it's going to lead to marriage. So we see the character of Boaz, and we see the character of Ruth. And I think it would be wise to learn from their character and say, God, would, would you grow me in character? 
But the main character and the true hero is Christ and the way that Christ loves us and what he has, has done for us. And this may sound odd to you, but hear me out. True change in my character usually hasn't happened as I've focused on my character. So there's an, there's an area of my character that I know is broken, and it's important to acknowledge that before God and, and be broken and, and, and be in repentance. But when I focus on an area of my character and say, I'm going to change, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, usually it ye- leads to greater failure. Have you ever experienced that? It's kind of like, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. Oh, I'm so angry right now, just trying not to get angry, right? But then what I have experienced in my life is as I focus on Christ's character, when I focus on his goodness, when I spend time at his table, when I I truly believe his, his love for me, and there's a season of that, of just marinating in God's love and fellowshipping with who, who he is, is that I, I realize, man, my character's starting to change. You know? I'm not quite as angry as I, as I used to be. I've, I've got a little more patience than, than I had. Man, I'm, I'm finding myself to be content. So I'd encourage you this morning to focus on Christ, your true hero. And have you been looking to someone else or, or, or something else as we spend time at the communion table, to not rush through it, but to come, there's tables in the front, tables in the back, find a quiet place in the sanctuary and just sit and reflect upon the goodness of God and really put yourself in the position of Ruth, of being the Moabitess. I remember when God got a hold of my life, I was a freshman in high school and I became very aware of my sin for the first time. Like, I knew that I was a sinner, and I, I even knew when I was doing things wrong. But in that moment, I realized that I had offended and sinned against God, a, a holy God. And God opened my eyes to his goodness in my life to put me in a Christian home, to have parents that loved me and, and told me about the knowledge of God, and I didn't want anything to do with God. I, I was willfully against God even though I had been given, given that opportunity. And God spoke to my heart and said, Eric, while you have wanted everything, you've wanted nothing to do with me, I've wanted everything to do with you. So there was this reality of my brokenness. There was this reality of how desperately I needed Christ, but then there was this reality of how much he loved me. I remember coming in to my parents' home and, and saying, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. Well, what happened? I realized I'm the Moabitess. I realized I, I needed grace and, and I needed forgiveness. And even as believers this morning, to realize that's the state that we're still in. We're, we're broken before God. We don't deserve to be at this table. Did we ever get to the place where we deserve for Jesus to die for us? That we deserve for Jesus to shed his blood? There's, there's some of you that maybe don't take communion when we celebrate communion because you feel like you're not worthy. And you've come to a misunderstanding of communion. Do you know that the Bible never tells us, take communion when you're worthy? The Bible tells us to slow down and make sure that we're making worth of Christ's sacrifice. You know, so if you're in that place of saying, I know that I'm not worthy, but man, I'm sure thankful that Christ has died for me, then come and celebrate, celebrate communion. 
And put yourself in that position while you take communion of receiving. Receive from the Lord. If there's things you need to get right with the Lord, get right with the Lord and receive his, his forgiveness, but believe his love for you. And also, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, maybe you've come to church for a season or, or years, and for some reason your understanding is, I've got to work harder and do better and maybe God will forgive me. And you're out there working in the field trying to earn your salvation, and God tells us that we can't earn salvation. It's a free gift that can only be received by grace. And in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray from your heart, to raise your hand to Christ and say, Jesus, save me. I believe that you died on the cross for me. You rose again. I'm turning from my sin and asking you to be the Lord of my life. And the beauty of the promise of Christ is that as we believe, we're saved. It's, it's, it's belief in what he has done for us. And allowing him to be the Lord of our life, saying, I'm ready for you to have the throne of my life. I've made a mess of me. I don't want to be in any charge anymore. I want you to have the, the chief chair. Then God forgives us, lives inside of us, and he begins to change us and, and transform us. Maybe you haven't come to church, and it was a huge step for you to come this morning. And your heart is being drawn by the Lord. You know that something's missing in your life and, and you're hearing for the first time, God loves me and I need grace. I need forgiveness and I'm ready to turn to Christ and ask that Christ would save me. So let's pray together. If you do know the Lord, if you would intercede on behalf of those that don't know the Lord and just give the opportunity for God to work. Father, in a way that I can't communicate, would you communicate your love? Would you communicate the magnitude of what it is that you sent your son to die for our sins? That Jesus, you willingly laid down your life. Maybe for those that have felt like that they could save themselves, that by being good or being moral, God, would you show them their need for a savior? Lord, for, for those that were maybe like me and have wanted nothing to do with you and they know that they're a sinner, but there's been a hard heart and they haven't wanted to surrender to you, may, may this be the moment where you call them by name. God, you're so good throughout your word to, to call people by name. So may you do that work. If this makes sense to you and you understand the gospel and you do feel that God is calling you to himself and you know that you're a sinner and you're ready to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Turn from your sins and say, Jesus, be my Lord. Would you raise your hand? Just leave it up high and I'm going to say a prayer with you. I'll just wait for a few moments and let's get my attention. And praise the Lord. Praise God. Anybody else that says, that's me. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. your hands raised, just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you died for my sin, that you rose again. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose again. I turn from my sin and receive your forgiveness. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hand down, and Lord, I, we just thank you for the response to the gospel, that believing. We know in your word that when we believe from the heart and confess with the mouth that you're Lord, that you save us, 
So we rejoice in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.